Welcome, everybody, to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the Greatest Bloody Matches in Professional Wrestling History, and writer for the Segunda Caeta blog. I am uh, pleased to be joined by Ian Douglas, a fellow author who is co-wrote the right word? Yeah, oh, co-wrote, co-authored. Co-authored uh, a Realist Guy in the Room, Dan Severn's autobiography, Life is Short and So Am I, Hornswoggle's autobiography, Brute Power, Bugsy McGraw's autobiography, and available via Kickstarter now. We're available to start Kickstarter right uh, now. Available, a bit, available via Kickstarter right now, the... I don't know that we're using Kickstarter the way it was really intended. The book is already written. It will be out no matter what. But this is an opportunity for you to get an autographed copy of B. Brian Blair's autobiography and um, some signed masks and other Brian Blair swag. Um, yeah. And the, the title of that is Truth Be Told as in be like the killer bees. So you got uh, it. solid pun title for, uh, for everybody. And in the context of what we're doing uh, today, you wrote the Tatsumi Fujinami uh, entry in the international wrestling pro wrestling hall of fame program. And we're going to be talking about uh, one of Tatsumi Fujinami's greatest matches, his battle with Akira Maeda on June 12th, 1986, new Japan pro wrestling. Yeah, uh, this was a watershed match in my pro wrestling fandom, so I can't wait to discuss this one with you. Oh, well, let's talk a little about that. How is it a watershed match in your pro wrestling fandom? It's it's a great match and one that I certainly have a lot of fondness for, uh, I, but how does it serve that? How did it serve that role? It was it was one of the first matches, and of course, I, I watched it ret- retroactively, of course. This, I was... Seven. I was six years old for most of 1986, uh, turned seven in September of that year. Um, certainly was just becoming a pro wrestling fan and didn't have any knowledge about the goings on in Japan, period, let alone what was going on in the wrestling rings of Japan. And when I finally saw this match for the first time, it was probably 1999 and 2000 and the level of discomfort that this match caused me just just can't be overstated (laughs) it really is it really is something i think it's a real great example of i mean both guys are incredible both guys are all-time greats but like what maida kind of brought to pro wrestling because he always felt like a guy who was on the verge of doing something he shouldn't do right In, in a way that you know the work shoots are something that has been really overdone and in for the most 90% of them stink, but like food, but Maeda was always a guy. It was just like, I don't know. This, you know, he might, uh, he might uh, try to tear Andre the giants uh, knee out with kicks or he might kick. He might, uh, he, he might throw a random kick at Ricky Choshu's face and break his <laughs> orbital bone. Like, dead in the middle of a match for, right. for no apparent reason. For no apparent reason. So it was a guy who was always like very dangerous. And this match definitely had that vibe where it was just like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know what, what the hell Maeda's going to do. And Fujina- and that was kind of the greatness of this feud, which was sort of a, a big part of the New Japan versus uh, UWF, uh, mm-hmm. UWF squad feud. This was kind of your two guys, uh, two sort of... <sighs> 
I mean, Inoki was there as maybe the top of the New Japan thing, and and Fujiwara in some ways had the that sort of elder statesman role in the UWF. But this was like your two top young star, youngish stars in their prime stars. Yes, these are the two. These are the two potential young aces to lead the new generation of New Japan, and I've been doing a lot. You know, full disclosure: Jumbo Saruta is my favorite wrestler of all time and you sort of have this in in japan the only way the ace hood it within a promotion or even within the country for that matter had ever really been handed down was through death and when ricky dozen died um when he was when he was stabbed with a blade that had been urinated on giant baba kind of inherited that position and the only way that Inoki could acquire a kingdom of his own was to go off and create one. And Giant Baba sort of willingly passed that, um, passed the ace status along to Jumbo Saruta when the NWA International Heavyweight Championship came back to all Japan, or I shouldn't say came back, they never had it before then, came to all Japan and once Saruta won it, Baba said, you're the ace from now on. Uh, Inoki, on the other, and, and that, was in, that was in 1983, I believe. Meanwhile, here we are in 1986, and Inoki is still holding on to the ace position in New Japan for dear life and leaving these, these candidates to sort of fight over that successorship. Right, and Maeda had left once already. Uh, and the, for the, that UWF kind of failed, and then he kind of was not very far along from leaving again. Like you know, this is I, I you know yeah. I, the shoe kick from from to Choshu. That was this weeks after this, maybe a month after this. I mean, well, it was yeah. they were on their way out basically, maybe yeah. or certainly less than a year. Choshu, yeah, shoe kick of Choshu. I think that was a year later. But this also gets into what like Inoki's mismanagement and stranglehold of the ace-dom sort of caused because New Japan had this record-breaking revenue year in, I think it was 84, and somehow they they were still in debt. So you had this sort of two-pronged breakaway where one of his business partners started a new New Japan Pro Wrestling entity that was later renamed Japan Pro Wrestling. And they broke away with Ricky Choshu. Uh, Masa Saito wanted to come. Uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu went. The British Bulldogs, I think, went too at the time. They were New Japan. But eventually, all of them jumped to All Japan. Under- this is Killer Khan was part of that too, wasn't he? Yeah, the, yeah, they were the they will jump. Yeah, the Japan Pro Wrestling banner um, is when they jumped. But also, supposedly, the UWF was this was supposed to be this backdoor way for Inoki to get out of the out of New Japan in case he needed to. And you even see when Maeda is awarded the the UWF championship um, when I think he fought um, is like Pierre Lefebvre in in Madison Square Garden in what was supposedly a finals for the WWF International Heavyweight Championship. 
when Maeda is awarded the belt, the belt says in big letters right in the middle, UWF. And I think it was above or below that. It also said WWF International. Is the WWF, it had been negotiated for that to be the sanctioning body of this breakaway group. But by the time it wound up manifesting itself in Japan, the UWF was advertising that Inoki would be on their shows, Hogan and Backlund would be on their shows, and none of them showed up for the first few <laughs> events, and the fans were pissed. But yeah, Inoki's, Inoki's mismanagement sort of created these, uh, caused this splintering in New Japan where one potential ace candidate went over here and another potential ace candidate went over here, and Fujinami's the one that stayed. Yeah, and it's interesting. You'd see something very similar to that uh, at uh, the end of the 80s with the UWF. Uh, right where that's a promotion that also had too many guys who wanted to who wanted to be the top guy and Maeda mm-hmm. Maeda forms rings and Takata and Yamazaki go to you know Delphi and Fujiwara uh, does PWFG yeah same same idea almost like you kind of with only one when you have all of these guys who kind of should be the man it's like too crowded and you see some splinters right I, I think in some ways you'd see something very similar with uh, when all, Noah split off from all Japan. Um, yeah. Although they took almost so everybody, was, but Kawada stayed and, and then, and, and uh, Taiokea stayed. And, and there were some guys who, and they brought Tenru back. Um, yeah, they when, brought Tenru war, back. when uh, war folded uh, first, a lot of those guys wound up in new Japan, uh, most famously Tenru winning the IWGP championship. But then almost all of the guys who, were any good in war and all the guys who were in the revolution stable, they wound up making their way to all Japan right alongside Tenru. I'm going to claim everybody was good in war. Who wasn't good in war? War was the best. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I have a lot of I have a lot of time for even the lumpiest and tubbiest of war heavyweights. I take those guys uh, uh, any day. I don't know, man. Did you see a ninety a nineteen ninety eight war show? Some of those were looking pretty uh, no, pretty man, light in the upper echelon. <laughs> at that point. I mean, you're talking to maybe the world's biggest Takashi Ishikawa fan. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend those. Uh, those tubby clothes lighting dudes all over the world. That, that's fine. Everybody needs fans. <laughs> so this match uh, we're talking about here was uh, was a IWGP League uh, thing. This was get if I if I got my research on this wrong. This was before you really had an IWGP title. Right. Yes, this is before the IWGP championship that transitioned during a, a single pinfall bout. Right. Instead, so, you had these sort of leagues every year that were kind of precursors to the G1, where you'd have yes. an IWGP champion crown the way you have an N- uh, NBA championship crown, champion crown, right? If the Bucks lose, uh, lose in... Um, in October to the Cleveland Cavaliers. It's not like the Cleveland Cavaliers become the NBA champions. And, and the mm-hmm. IWGP title was initially a little like that. Which, which would be interesting to see if they could sort of uh, ship uh, around with every victory and loss. That would be yeah. interesting. But yes, you're absolutely right. This was in the vein of the champion carnival or the G1 climax. And interestingly, like in all Japan, when they had the world's strongest tag league, Every year, whomever the 
world tag team champions were, they would vacate the championship so that a new champion could be crowned via the world's strongest tag league. So that was considered the true test of, of a champion. If you could vacate it before the big event and then still emerge with the championship at the end. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And this match, you know, I think one thing that was a little frustrating for me as a fan going back to the, uh, to this, uh, the UWF versus New Japan feud, which is absolutely incredible stuff like up there with maybe the greatest things ever in professional wrestling are those few those matches i've got a, a lot of fondness for those uwf guys maybe my all-time favorite wrestler ever is yoshiaki fujiwara i just did a podcast where i talked about gushed about him for an hour last week so this is a very uwf kind of run here i'm doing a way of the blade but uh so i have a lot of time for this do you have the fujiwara gumi t-shirt i don't have the t-shirt i've got on my blog, Segunda Kaida, I've got something called a complete and accurate Yoshiaki Fujiwara, where I've probably reviewed 150 of his matches. But I need this. I, I could could use the T-shirt. I don't know these. I am a big guy, man. Those Japanese T-shirts get to find. It's hard <laughs> to find sizes that even come close to fitting me. Maybe I'll get one for my son or something like that. Uh, who Who is the guy? He the, the American. He lost the world shoot fighting championship to. Um, Bart Vale, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Bart Vale. Bart Vale, <laughs> Bart Vale ruled, man. That guy looked like he was uh, straight up the kind of guy you would see out of working at a, uh, you know, a strip mall in Miami, karate think, dojo with a big uh, mullet. Yes. I can't watch uh, Napoleon Dynamite Rex Quanto without thinking <laughs> of Bart Vale. Yes, Bart Vale. There's some, there's some, like, really good Bart Vale matches. That guy was in some, that guy had, was a goofy looking guy and had some bad stuff, but I, you know, if you take a top five Bart Vale, you're like, Oh, he's pretty good. That match in Miami. I don't know if that's what you're talking about. It uh, is. Is that, that's a great match, man. It's just I haven't a, seen it. Oh, watch the it. match. It's, it rules. It like for apparently Bart Vale, incredibly over in Miami. And it's like a Rocky movie. And send, it's send me a link. I will send you a link. 100% after this podcast, you'll have a link in your, uh, uh, in your Twitter DMs of that match. Thank I think I'll you. even post it. Uh, but, you. but yeah, it really does have the, that match really does have the feel of like, um, that Bart Vale must have been like a been maybe running shows in Miami for years. This is the one that's on tape because he came in as like this huge crowd favorite where they were just like rabid for Vale. And Fujiwara comes out really doing kind of uh, like he's Mister Fujiwara, where he is like, <laughs> it's like, like, like almost like you wanted, almost like you expected him to throw salt in yes. Bart Vale's eyes or something like that. It's really, really tremendous. Not necessarily we're talking. Let's ceremonial right ceremonial yeah, do a little bow the, the whole court, thing yeah. he was he was on one uh you know <laughs> he's tojo yamamoto or something like that um um and but yeah so, is still wrestling Fujiwara is still wrestling there. still great one of the he's incredible out of the great probably you know a top five uh wrestler currently in his 60s Easy. There's a bunch of luchadors. I mean, ageless luchadors who who are competing with him for his title of best uh, best uh, wrestler who could collect social security checks. But well, the the mask helps their helps the agelessness right, of yeah, the luchadors. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I say one of the things that sort of did, did frustrate me is it did feel they had so many great tags and multi-man matches, but it felt like they left some singles matches on the table a little bit. Like this match couldn't set up a rematch more perfectly, but the oh. rematch never happens, right? You don't ever, you don't ever get Maida 
uh, Fujinami 2. Right. Even though the way this ends, you know, it feels like you're absolutely selling me tickets yes. for Maeda Fujinami 2. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd have bought the pay-per-view, 100%. We, know, we never got a Fujinami-Fujiwara singles match either during this period. Uh, was, I, was something we talk, I talked about actually last week, where it's just like, that's one of the all-time most inexplicable matches that never happened, because they're both there, they're both in the promotion at the same time, they're, they have these great interactions in tags and like multi-man matches just never ran a singles match during this period although they ran uh something like 25 of them when they were both kids and like 83 like 83 when they were both starting they yeah. never had one then and, and you never had i mean might uh but my, i mean if you had to make a list of your maybe top 10 all-time matches that felt like they should have happened and never did it's got to be uh maida fujinami too has got to be up there after this match because yeah, uh, 100%. 100%. I have to agree with that. Um, and and I, don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. You're 100, you're 100% right. It's inexcusable. And you just get a sense, or at least I get the sense, that it just had to do with the, the, the internal politics of New Japan and nobody wanting to actually lie down and take that pinfall loss or submit. Yeah. And uh, I think that probably had a lot to do with why you had a lot of more tags and elimination matches and things like that in this feud is they, they would, those guys would be willing to, maybe I'll take a fall in a, in a, uh, in a, in a tag match or I'll have an elimination match where I'm forced to the outside or something like that to be eliminated. Um, but, you know, for the most part, they did do clean finishes at this point in this feud, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, Fuji, Fujiwara lost to Anoki, and you know, and uh, so maybe, uh, but Maeda is a guy, tough guy to deal with. I think everybody sort of realized that. Uh, a guy I have a lot of fondness for, a guy who's responsible for some of the great, greatest wrestling ever, but can't, I can't imagine must have been an easy person to have to, uh, to have to deal with backstage, is why a lot of his promotions <laughs> end up the way they did. Uh, yeah. But you know, there's part of, I think that's a, a, a characteristic of great of greatness sort of at all fields, right? As I don't know, for the most part, uh, people who are really great may not necessarily be the best coworkers. Absolutely right. And, you know, um, great skill or great ability in, in one, it's, it's sort of like running for president of the United States that uh, you may have a great skill in appealing to people and getting elected. And that may have absolutely nothing to do with your ability to lead or actually run a country. And, yeah, you you may be you may be a great wrestler. You may be among the best of the world, and if we put you in control, you may just run a wrestling organization into the ground. Yes, um, and but you know, like I said, they were able to produce a lot of really incredible things. I mean, Rings ran a long time, right? I mean, that was a promotion that that that, that, that was maybe when he kind of figured it out, right? As uh, as he did, and I think if I got this wrong, I think he was he's doing a thing now where he's running like a shoot promotion in Japan that's criminals fighting each other, like untrained criminals fighting each other, I think is what Akira Maeda is currently doing. Like he's right out like a true brother in Japan. And it's mostly just like guys out of prison who don't have any MMA training necessarily in like MMA fights. That's news to me. And that sounds incredible and of questionable legality. I I couldn't see you doing that here. Right. I, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. I could just be, it could be just something I dreamed. 
Uh, but I, I was, I'm pretty sure that what's going on right now is Akira Bain is running a, 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 a MMA promotion that is mostly just released criminals. And in fact, I'm pretty sure I've even watched some of it. You, uh, you've, uh, you've sold me on it. I want to see the <laughs> ring set up in the middle of a prison yard. I want a no holds barred tournament and I want the winner to receive a belt and a commuted sentence at the end of it. <laughs> I think these may be, I think these may be released criminals. It's not actually <laughs> jail shoot writing. All that is also a great idea. Right, it feels like something you just see in like uh, in some movie set in Louisiana in 1962 or something like that. Where it's like, you know, is there? A jail, if I remember correctly, there's a jail in. I want to. I want to say in Louisiana that's got really dangerous rodeos, mm. and that's something they do. I, you know, I again, a lot of times, I go off on a. Um, I go off on some tangents here. Oh, yes. Maeda's, I'm looking at Wikipedia. Maeda's new project was called The Outsider, an amateur uh, MMA series that uses a uh, hero's rules. So it's called, he's currently uh, doing the, called The Outsider. So I, according to Wikipedia, oh, I'm pretty, sure. Sure, pretty sure The Outsider means that these guys are outside some, uh, some of the laws of society. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, if if it doesn't match the scenario we described, then we need to pitch this to somebody. Right, there you go. That's our reality show, right? There's enough streaming services. <laughs> oh, man. I, could, could, you, could you imagine a setting with better crowd heat? You got eight people thanked in the background of every match. It would be incredible. <laughs> it, let's, let's get back a little to the, to the actual work in this match because I'm a, a big fan of what they actually do here. And it's interesting um, – because this is sort of a real mixed match in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Fujinami is a classic professional wrestler, right? Ruga Maybe style. one of the yep. greatest professional wrestling, professional wrestlers ever, right? That's what, uh, you know, his later like tradition promotions were all about, like this yep. very traditional, like, I'm a wrestler. And then Maid obviously is. In many ways, the god, uh, one of the godfathers of mixed martial arts, and it really is a a, a match where uh, Fujinami is trying to prove the superiority of professional wrestling, and Maeda is trying to mit- turn it into a fight. Yeah, it's in in my view, it's sort of like if you had a schism in the styles of Inoki, and and one of them came down on more the pure pro wrestling side, and one of them landed closer to the um, his king of sports style, where he wanted pro wrestling to be a legitimate martial art capable of withstanding all other martial arts. Maeda lands on that side of the equation, and it's. In that sense, it truly is like this dichotomy where you have the split personalities of Antonio Inoki. Oh, I love in it. Perfect. It's exactly what it is, right? It's like Inoki is somehow uh, like a sci-fi movie, but split into <laughs> two and the two sides of Inoki are battling it out here. And then, of course, it has to end like it ends then, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have one side of Anoki beat the other side of Anoki. It's got to end with, I mean, it, we can talk a little bit about this match ends, basically. Anoki's ego would never allow it. Anoki's <laughs> ego, we would, it wouldn't, he wouldn't lay, he's not going to lay down for anyone, including himself. I, I wouldn't even, I'm not going to lose to me. Uh, not, e- sir, not not even when he's wearing a crimson mask. Right, not even when he's wearing a crimson mask. And, and that's what ends up, this match is, of course, qualifies 
for my book uh, because of the finish, which is basically uh, Fu uh, Fujinami eats like a spin kick in the corner. The rolling rolling wheel kick in the corner that just hits a gusher. Right, and just like, uh, hits him in the temple, and he just starts spraying blood. Yep. And you can see he does this thing where, oh, my, it is, and it goes from zero to 60 real fast. I mean, almost like a Tommy Rich uh, level of I'm not bleeding at all until I'm bleeding all the blood out of my head. It really is a, pretty incredible. He just, you can see him touch his, four, touch his temple and then remove his hand. It's just like his it, entire chest is covered in red. It looks like a motion picture jump cut. Like the camera, yes. the, the camera work was perfect because you have the, the pulled out shot. And I haven't, I haven't watched this match in like, 10 years but, I remember, but you have the the pull the full ring shot the rolling wheel kick lands and they immediately cut to a shot of fujinami he's touching he's touching his temple but it looks like the entire side of his face is already covered with blood and as you mentioned the blood is dripping onto his chest it's, it's incredible yeah and, and then they kind of just go pretty quickly into both guys attempting a, a double kick and then a double count out which i assume was the planned finish of this match and they just had to kind of get to it pretty quickly and you know it's a it's a i guess a technical flaw in what is otherwise a pretty incredible match because you know Baida goes down pretty fast for this dead count in this case right it really didn't feel like oh we got to call it we got to get him to a hospital we gotta just we gotta get we gotta get him to the hospital i'm just gonna lie down here and just i'm gonna you know eat a 10 count on something that doesn't really look like it should have hurt me that much but you know we gotta you know get the doctors out here this guy's gonna die yeah uh, although although fujinami i guess they assessed it in the ring and decided it wasn't that bad because they linger long enough for them to do the hug and the handshake and right, kind of wrap. They kind of wrap his wrap his forehead in like a in like a towel. Uh, yeah, well, Japanese wrestling wrestlers are crazy. I mean, that's part of it, right? Like, you know, you can sure, of course, he's not. I mean, all wrestlers are in kind of some ways, right? But you got to make sense. Like, oh, I gotta gotta do the whole thing where we, you know, celebrate the, the tie and do all that kind of stuff before you go and take and sew my head up here. Yeah, uh, when I when I talk about the discomfort that this match caused for me. As a wrestling fan, this was my first time seeing something. I, I can tell you, the, the first time I ever saw New Japan Pro Wrestling, it was the IWGP title tournament that Vader won. I think it was ninety, it was ninety one or ninety two, okay. and um, I think he beat. I think he beat Hashimoto in the final, but I recall. That was the first time I'd ever seen any any Japanese pro wrestling. I was about 15 years old. And to my American eyes that had been raised on WWF and WCW, everything I was watching was 100% real. And and you couldn't have convinced me otherwise. That I I was watching I was watching legitimate fighting or whatever real pro wrestling was. That's what I was watching. And then, so with that mindset, and then I'm, I'm given this tape of Fujinami and Maeda, they, they start off doing chain wrestling, which is Fujinami's preference. And then every time there's a break, Maeda starts 
kicking Fujinami hard in the face. And, and I'm watching it internally freaking out, like somebody stop him. <laughs> that, that's not what wrestling is. He's actually, he's actually going to hurt him. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it is. It's the great thing about Maeda, right? Is he's a guy who can bring that out of of people who are watching what he did. It's why he became such a huge star, right? Is because he had that sort of, you know, or even before he left for the first UWF, and certainly after the first one and in between, and then going on through the remainder of his career up until the point where he became too old to really compete with the guys in rings. Uh, yeah. But but uh, he was, I mean, a lot of that early ring stuff was really great, too, with him against just random Dutch kickboxers and shit like mm-hmm. that. Just like, I still <laughs> kind of came off as the, you know, as one of the baddest dudes alive. And he obviously, really mm-hmm. and Fujinami, obviously a bad motherfucker, too. But, but, but again, a guy whose reputation was more based on sort of technical skill. Like, he was a guy who was going to be, uh, who is going to perform wrestling very perfectly. Right. And he's and he's going to he's going to tie you up. He's going to lock you up. He's going to put you in a suplex. He's going to Greco Roman, throw you to the ground. And he's going to really be the sort of master of a technical skill. And and it's interesting, not in like a flashy way. Like there are some very technical wrestlers who are very flashy. Um, You know, somebody like Negro Navarro or somebody like Zack Sabre Jr. Fujami isn't that. It's very much like. You know the kind of thing you'd see Dory Funk Jr. do, or or uh, or Jack Briscoe. I think more entertaining than those guys, but uh, you know a, a guy who's going to really you know take you down and really work your arm and work your leg and be be very simple but very technically adept. Yeah, as a as a junior heavyweight, like his stuff against Dynamite Kid even was was unbelievable and then by 85 86 he's very much a heavyweight he's very much adapted his style but he's probably in terms of crispness and execution he's he might have been the very i will i make the argument that he was the crispest technical wrestler in the world during the 1980s at least as far as heavyweights in the main event picture were concerned I yeah, I think really that's accurate. I really can't think of anyone better. Yeah, I mean, there's some. I mean, I, I, there's some guys in Mexico who I think you could make that argument for mm-hmm. uh, to guys like uh, Blue Panther, Negro Casas, but uh, See, but I, yeah, I, I, mean, I never watched enough lucha, so yeah, yeah you got to watch more lucha. Man, Look, get the book. There's there's 35 or so really incredible lucha matches in there. It's a good start. <laughs> I can send you clips, but I mean, I'm trying to think of other guys who would be. I don't really think there was anybody in America. Um, you know, maybe some real undercard guys who mm-hmm. were pretty, te- you know, less important or something like that, or really technically skilled. But uh, you know, I, uh, for as much as Flair had that rap, that wasn't really his thing. It, it, you know it really, I mean? w- it really wasn't. And I also make the argument that as far as <sighs> saying that Ric Flair is the greatest of all time, you know, it's it's a safe thing to say. But when you start looking at I'm going to get heat for this and that's that's okay. I don't care. People can people can argue against it and it's fine. When you look at the guys at least in Japan who you would also make an argument for as far as being the greatest of the era or the greatest of all time, when you look at guys like first of all Fujinami is inventing moves. The the dragon suplex was his. 
the dragon sleeper was his um and he's constantly innovating his moves his move set his repertoire i hate to use the word move set because that comes out of a video game and it's not really the purest way to refer to that um no that's 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 me i'm checking myself Uh, (laughs) and then and then Jumbo Saruta, who you'd make the argument, he was essentially a main eventer from 73 to 92, uninterrupted. And his style, even at the end of the 80s, is completely different from his style at the beginning. These are by the at the beginning of the 80s, he's doing German suplexes and double underhooks. And by the end, he's doing high angle backdrops, power bombs, and lariats. Um Flair. The flair you saw in 82 is the same flair you get in 92 and the same flair you get in 2002 with with little to no difference as far as the the actual moves that are executed during a match. I mean, in some ways, you can argue that his, his moves actually got smaller, right? He would, if you watch 82 flair, he's doing a lot more suplexes and stuff like that. Although I'm, I'm a guy who I'm in my heart, a minimalist. So I'm somebody who's going to necessarily, argue, I, I, I'm not necessarily a guy who cares as much about the uh, stuff you do and more about the way, you, the, the way you do it. And so I, I'm going to make a brief argument for, I, I'm a, I'm a Terry Funk guy. If you're asking me yeah. to put down mm-hmm. who the greatest of all time is, I'm going to say Terry Funk. And I probably have a handful of guys over flair too, but I mean, the, I think the way you'd, you know, Flair is an entire, you have to look at Flair as an entire package, right? That Ric Flair in the ring is, you can't separate that from Ric Flair on uh, on World Championship Wrestling, uh, you know, in a three-piece suit talking shit about Dusty Rhodes. It's all part of the same thing. And obviously that whole presentation, the Ric Flair presentation, is how you get Ric Flair as the greatest wrestler of all time. And I don't think you can separate that from the argument. And also I think the other argument you make for Flair is he's a he's not a guy who's working the same 15 to 20 guys over and over again, right? He maybe a little later in the career he works a lot of the same people, but if you look at a uh, Rick Flair's uh, match list at 85. It's like I'm I'm working, you know, somebody I'm working uh, uh, Cologne, Carlos Cologne one week and Bugsy McGraw, your guy, the other mm-hmm. week. And then I got to go to work cousin Luke in Kansas City. And then I've got to work Luger. And then I got to, you know, wrestle the Kita. And I mean, he's just a guy who, who would just travel the world basically and, you know, probably show up, you know, party all night. Uh, the night before, go to the arena, talk to for seven minutes to Cousin Luke about, it, and then they'll work forty five minutes with Cousin Luke. Leave everybody in the arena uh, happy they saw him. Go out, uh, you know, to wherever they go out to whatever the hottest nightclub of that town is all night. Get out of play the next day and do the same thing in Portland with uh, with uh, Brett Wayne Sawyer. And there has to be, you got to, I mean, I think there's got to be some real, you got to give him some real credit for being able to do that kind of thing at that level every night. And sure, some of it's going to be formulaic, but, but hell, you got to have some, you got to play your greatest hits when you're touring all over the world, right? I completely agree with every, every single thing you said. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Ric Flair was the, the ultimate embodiment of what a traveling NWA world heavyweight champion was supposed to be. He could go an hour every night. He had a style that he could make work with absolutely anyone, whoever they put in front of him at in any 
NWA territory or any non-NWA wrestling ring. He he had a style that could work with everyone. And his his place as if if the argument is ma- people who mastered a style that could potentially garner four to five stars out of even the lowest level, lowest quality workers for 20, 30, for 20 or 30 years um, that he could extract that level of match out of just about anybody. Um, You've got no argument for me. And in terms of Ric Flair out of the ring and what he did on, on interviews to, um, embellish that package and make it um, make it big box office. You'll, you'll, there was there was no none other like them. You'll get you'll get absolutely no argument from me. So from that total package standpoint, I would agree that Flair is the best. No. Um, and I want to just want one more thing, and then we're obviously we're not talking about Ric Flair on this podcast, but, like, <laughs> right. but whatever. But we are. So I think we I, can I always do, cut this. Yeah, we're not cutting <laughs> any of it. Uh, the other thing I want to say about Flair is I think he does. I agree with you that he's a guy who could had a formula that could get any could get a great match out of virtually anybody. But I think it's a little overstated. And I talked. We talked about. I talked about this when I talked with my buddy Lars Fredrickson about Flair Morton on the podcast. Folks should listen to if they're listening to this one. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, the thing about Flair was there, it's a little overstated that his matches were all the same because Flair Nikita is not the same as Flair Ronnie Garvin. And that's Agreed. not the same as Flair Ricky Steamboat. It's not the same as Flair versus Ricky Morton. And it's not, you know, and he certainly had a thing that he could, he would do, but there was a fair amount of variety in a Ric Flair, in Ric Flair's like sort of, uh, career. And I think part of the reason of part of the thing about it, he is the rest, the great wrestler that we have the most footage. Of. I mean, there's so much flair out there. I mean, there's you know, a fair amount of these great Japanese wrestlers too. Like, uh, but you know, there's also, you know, some of your other greatest of all time contenders, you've got huge missing chunks of their careers. Right. I mean, you ever want to get frustrated and go look at uh, cage match results from, Mid-South Wrestling and look at all the Jerry Lawler main events that just don't exist on tape that you can't see. Yeah. It's like, so I'm sure somebody fucking taped this, you know, this this uh this um you know 60-minute match again. I mean, he's got he's got one against Fujinabi in Mid-South. Like it goes a really long time. It's, it's gotta be incredible, right? Like it, you know, it doesn't exist on tape. And uh, so some of these guys in funk, same thing, right? There's a ton of we don't have a ton of Florida that exists in complete. We don't have very much of his NWA title rating that exists. Mm-hmm. Anything more than Kleps, uh, whereas Flair, it's like you, we guy can see. I've seen Flair, right? I don't know if there's going to be if there's new Flair that is going to emerge that's going to change my opinion of him. Yeah. Um, which makes arguing about him a little bit like okay. It's I mean I've been uh, been in the on the fucking internet wrestling uh, boards for twenty god, odd years. You know, like I, I've exhausted Rick Flair, my Ric Flair takes. I'm just repeating them again here. But uh, yeah, you know, and obviously the Japanese guys like food. I think Fujinami especially because he's not part of that um, all Japan lineage, which I think is definitely the most studied and discussed part of that uh, of Japanese wrestling for American wrestling fans. Right, that period of the four pillars period, Kobashi, Misawa, Kawada, Tawai, that stuff people have written a ton about and talked about a ton. And in Jumbo, who's who's your guy, he's in 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 that at the beginning, right, of the 90s, before he gets hepatitis and has to 
you know, functionally retire. And it's part of that lineage. Whereas a guy like Fujinami, it's like, I think at least certainly in the nineties when this was happening. And I think later, most of the discussion of greatness in new Japan was focused on their junior heavyweights, right? Like when you saw like, when you, you, like, you know, when I started, like, you know, I started, Putting you know putting together mixed comp tape mixtapes and or you know started the Death Valley in part of the Death Valley Driver, you know all of that era of stuff that I was part of. You know your arguments. I, great. I was on I was on the DVD VR boards reading all the time. All right, you posting, I was reading everything. Okay, right. So you know that's that I I started that board at a temp job. I had it uh, in uh, how, Washington D.C. How's Dean Rasmussen doing? He's by doing the way? he's doing okay, man. I think he retired. He's like you know it does. He raises his kids. I'm gonna have to have him on the podcast at some point too. Please, he's a, he's please. A, um, but uh, yeah. So like, I think you're you know you're talking about your Liger and Otani and Co- Kanemoto and those guys mm-hmm. when you talk about your great match New Japan El Samurai. Guys. Yeah, El Samurai. All, sure, El Samurai. Absolutely, I love El Samurai. And I think that so I think a lot of times your heavyweight stuff was stuff that wasn't talked about as much. And yeah, Fujinami is a guy which I think is probably under discussed in that in that sort of great wrestler era because if people were talking about a New Japan card, they were normally talking about the 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 nine minutes of a fourteen minute Jushin Liger match which New Japan show, would show on TV, and not as much about the main event stuff. I would certainly much rather watch New Japan Japanese heavyweight wrestling from the nineties now than junior wrestling when I revisit it. Like my my, my tastes have changed to the point where I would much rather watch a Fujinami match than the Liger match. Although I certainly yeah. love Liger, and um, I got the sense that not that there wasn't necessarily a clean. A clean handoff because I, I thought that that Fujinami, for instance, was so technically proficient and his and his matches were so crisp. And then it, it it's almost like suffering by comparison that the that like like Mudo especially is it just came across as as sloppy in comparison to what was happening in all Japan at the time. Right, and I was different right i mean i i think it was a lot simpler right a shunya hashimoto match is simpler than a masawa match he's gonna it, kick you in the chest a dozen times drop you on drop your head you with a ddt yes it, it, with a brain buster choppy i mean i mm-hmm. absolutely shunya hashimoto is one of my all-time favorite guys i he's great I caught his bandana uh in uh, pennsylvania when he worked a four-way match with Steve Carino, Dylan Knight. No, oh, not okay. Dan Severn. It was okay. it was a four-way. It was Steve Carino, Dylan Knight, and Gary Steele in a forty-five-minute mm-hmm. mm-hmm. most falls Ironman match in Pennsylvania, in a back of a rec center in Pennsylvania somewhere. Uh, but you're know, one of my all-time great live wrestling moments uh, ever. Was uh, uh, I was catching the bandana, then watching. 45 minutes of Shinya Hashimoto like beat the ever-living shit out of Dylan Knight, who was like a local <laughs> PWF, like local. I don't think ever this was this was the moment that he is known for if he's known for everything. I was standing right in front of his mother. <laughs> and his mother like was so was like grabbing my shoulders in pure <laughs> nervousness as Shinya Hashimoto is kicking the lugs out of this kid. And yeah. uh, I mean, just incredible stuff. So I want to, I cannot uh, have more fondness for Hashimoto. And, and in uh, some yeah. ways, 
my I, taste has changed that I, I'd rather watch a 95 Hashimoto match than a 95 Misawa match. I, I love my point. Hashimoto matches. Don't get me wrong. It, it, amazes, it amazes me when you when you finally see these guys and wrestling in the U.S. And these are the guys like Hashimoto's drawing 60,000 to the Tokyo Dome or whatever. And he's revered as a god. And then you just see him in the local VW or whatever, maybe. or the VA, the VA. Yeah, it's maybe, crazy. Maybe 120 people there. I think was at the show. It was basically me, me, uh, me, me and my friends. And then I think that uh, uh, a rock and rebel heckling the Japanese guys from the back. Uh, that piece of shit was at that show uh, heckling the uh, heckling the wrestlers until Hashimoto. Hashimoto shut him up. You can't heckle Hashimoto, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like once you watch that, you're like, oh, okay, Rock and Rebel's not going to play about short these other guys are. Um, I, I'm a massive Yuji Nagata mark, and I saw him wrestle for the first time ever live. It was um, a year or two ago at the at the VA down the street when New J- in Durham when New Japan did their did their little quickie U.S. tour. Oh, that must have been uh, cool. Yeah, oh, it, it, it was incredible. And um, Hiroshi Tanahashi was there too. But it's just unbelievable <laughs> when you're in a room with like 200 people max. And you, I want to look at these guys and say, what are you doing here? Like, but I just like greater than watching, some, <laughs> watching like a great artist work a small club. That's the best, right? <laughs> I mean, right. You know, I mean, you know, it's fun to watch guys do arenas, but it's also cool. I mean, if you can catch... Somehow you catch a great jazz musician at your local jazz spot. I mean, that's nothing better than that. I've I've seen I had I've I've seen uh, Elliot Santo live probably a dozen times. I mean, one of them mm-hmm. was at a show uh, where I think there might have been twenty five people there. It was like there was like nobody. It was like nobody at this show. Whoever whoever booked and fucked up the promotion of this thing. And it was him where he was working a a tag match uh, where he was teaming. I think he remember this great match too. He was teaming, I think, with uh, Mike Quackenbush against Loki and El Mariachi. I think it was the match. This was like 2002 or something like that. And it's just amazing. Because like Elio Sando, obviously one of the all-time biggest stars in professional wrestling history. Yes. And to watch a guy who's going to say, I'm going to still do... I'm going to tope into these chairs. I don't care that there's nobody <laughs> sitting at them. Right? Like, like there's nobody actually attending the show. I'm still going to do all of my stuff. Uh, and you know, be like be El Hio de Santo in front of in front of nobody. Shinya Hashimoto was still Shinya Hashimoto in front of nobody. Yeah. I imagine Yuji Nagata was still Yuji Nagata, right? To watch these yeah, guys, I mean, there's something really cool about seeing you know all time legends work small clubs and you know do their thing. I mean, better than I mean, I've seen Santo in Arena Mexico too. That was incredible as well. But it was also incredible to watch him in outside of New York City somewhere in like a strip mall. Yeah. Uh, worked the mat with uh, with Loki, like a twenty yeah. three year old Loki or something like that. Uh, I will say Tanahashi wasn't quite Tanahashi in front of this the small audience. Oh, he got, wasn't doing got, it. We got no frog splashes out of him. No, <laughs> he, there's there's some people who take that approach too. <laughs> yeah, he he did not go to the top. Okay, he's, you know, he's a bad piece. Okay, sure, uh, that's true. But I is uh, but um, so I was yeah. So I think it's. To sort of get back to the the topic of this a little bit, I think Sorry. I think Fujin. No, this is this. Every one of these is like this. Okay. Uh, this is what these podcasts are. Right? We talk and then about one thing, and then we're off to talk about fifteen other things, and eventually we'll circle back to the match itself. Mm-hmm. Was, this is this is perfect. It's great. Uh, so I think for your all time guys, and I think both of these guys 
or on lists that you're going to make of all-time greats. I think these are probably both a pair of relatively underappreciated yes. tremendous wrestlers. Maeda, yes. I think the rings, I think Tamura probably gets a little more, and Volkan get a mm-hmm. little more hype about in the ring stuff than Maeda does. I think Maeda probably has a little bit of a, somewhat of a bad reputation for people who care about things like professionalism in their professional wrestlers. Not something I care <laughs> tremendously about. I don't care if somebody's, I don't really care about that. I, you entertain me. Do I, does that, that, so I don't care whether you're easy to work with. That doesn't bother me. I don't have to work with you. So I can't, you know, like, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, that was, a, I, we talked, I mentioned Loki earlier. Um, like another guy I really have a, a lot of time for. And it was a guy who, who people would always shit on for me. Oh, that guy's always burning bridges. Like, huh? I'm burning my bridge. Is he going out there having great matches? I don't care if he, the promoters don't like him. Yeah, I think he became a COVID denier in the last year or two, so it became harder to defend him. But yeah. but like at some point, it's like I don't you know I don't care as much whether somebody yeah. is like a. But but is the match good? Is That's the match good? Is. Right? This, I don't you know it's like at some point I don't really care. I mean you know you don't want people to be monsters, but you know it's professional wrestling. Yeah, this, this is not a you know I'm sure there's some nice people involved in it, but. You know, but not the majority. <laughs> Maeda also had that. That was another thing about scared me that, that scared me about Maeda during that initial viewing of Maeda Fujinami is I I read about his reputation for violence on DVDVR, as a matter of fact, just and then seeing Maeda with just the wild look in his eyes, it just reminded me of Vanderlei Silva that. Yeah, that's just, a good comparison. He he just had that look in his eyes like he was actually out to hurt somebody. And the, he had me, you know, through through space and time watching a match that was by that point 13, 14 years old. I'm I'm trying to will Fujinami to get out of the ring. Like you don't understand. <laughs> this guy actually wants to hurt you. And, and did. I mean, that's <laughs> the end of this match, right? Is he did hurt him. He, he, he opened up his head with a kick that was not pulled and not, you know, there's, you know, a lot of the stuff that was, you know, so cool about this UWF, those UWF guys, look, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to throw this and you can, you can take it and hopefully you don't end up. <laughs> I mean, all, all of the, you, all of the, you know, I have three, I have uh, three UWF, uh, this isn't really a UWF match, but in that sort of spirit, three matches of the, with these guys in the book, all three of that blood, all of that blood's hard way, right? It, it, it's, yeah. it's Fujinami, uh, it's Fujinami getting his temple opened up. It's Yamazaki uh, busting up uh, Fujiwara's mouth and it's, uh, mm-hmm. and it's Funaki breaking Nakano's nose. And all of nothing, no blades. It's in my books all the way. The blade. These matches don't have blades in them. This is the the blades here are fists and kicks. That's what the, the, that's what the, does the, the job. The blood's here now. What are we going to do about it? We yeah. didn't plan for this. Um, and it was surprising to me just looking at some of the other some of the actual UWF stuff where you have where you have Dutch Mantel showing up for some reason and. Maeda's style just looks very the, the kicks and strikes they look obviously pulled. The, the Dutch Mantel match is a little weird, right? Because that was their yeah. first show, and they yeah. had in, in '84 they hadn't figured out what they were. 
Yeah, well, like Grand Hamada was on that show too. They, that was them. They were a wrestling promotion at that point. Right. I think a little later, the, that's the idea. Is like, isn't it funny? Dutch Mantel works shoots. Oh, that, Dutch Mantel worked on Maeda match. Like Maeda would have with somebody in New Japan. And then they kind of, as they moved a little farther into that promotion, started to figure out a little bit what they were going to be. And we're pretty shoot yes. style by the end. And then the second UWF, UWF Reborn is where they really were. This is a style that is defined. That first right. UWF, which I watched the time we did a, a on Death Valley Driver, we did a an 80s set, other Japan 80s set. We've done a bunch of these 80s sets where we had polls on the best matches in the 1980s. And I helped put together the other Japan 80s set that had mm-hmm. on the UWF and early FM, both UWFs and early FM. So I watched all, you know, one of the, one of the, this is something you could, I could have only done when I was single and didn't have kids where you just go, okay, I'm going to watch every ounce of footage from all of these promotions and yeah. then cherry pick 75 matches to put on uh, uh, DVDs and then send them to people in the mail. That was how this worked back then. And so yeah. I watched all of this stuff and you could definitely see there was a point where the, the first UWF was them trying to figure this out. Right. And, and the earliest stuff, like the Dutch Mantels, that was that was just pro wrestling. They didn't oh. even really do shoots up. But everything Maeda does, does even when he's younger than this, has that kind of reckless aura to it, right? The stuff in yes, the stuff in uh, England, Quick Kick Lee Quick had, kick that vibe, yeah. had that vibe, had that had that vibe to it. The stuff he did in New Japan before he left it, certainly it, had that vibe to it. Yes, everything he was in, it just portends violence, and I was. Well, I've, with with Dutch Mantel, I was just making the point, um, and I'm I'm glad you brought some context to it because I was just thinking like there seems to there seems to be an agreement struck at some point that this morphed into look. I'm going to throw this kick at your face, and it's coming in hard, and hopefully you can take it. I don't Dutch, know. Dutch isn't we'll, going to fucking do we'll, that. We'll see. <laughs> like, and, Dutch is not going to be here. I love Dutch Mantel, but that's not, he's not going to have a fucking – he's not going to participate in that nonsense. <laughs> I distinctly remember um, – and again, I haven't looked at the old stuff. and It, it might have been 20 years, but for some, for some reason, this stuck with me. And by the way, I'm a – I have – Incredible appreciation for DVDVR because I read all up to a point. And it was either you or Dean made the analogy that I just loved that they said, um, looking at old, old, old Japan, and it was either a, um, a Kentaro Oki Abdullah the Butcher match where they're where there's a hundred headbutts and they're getting bloody and they're going outside the ring and it's a double ring out. And, and then they said like thinking that nineties, all Japan somehow morphed out of this. That's like, that's like saying that ring started out as a Lucha fit (laughs) or something like that. That might've been me. Try to think. God, I don't remember everything I've ever written. I get the yeah. sense that I, 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 I may, I'm going to go ahead and give credit to Dean because if it wasn't him, I probably there's a decent chance half the things I wrote were things that he said on road trips that I just stole from him. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to give the flowers to the to the originator of it and the, the analogy. But yeah, I mean that's the thing. It's all of this stuff. You know, that's the thing about pro wrestling is that you know the beauty of it of being a fan of this insanity is just the incredible variety of great mm-hmm. things right where there's i mean that's what i think I, I, the book uh i think what i really tried to do was represent using blood as a lens represent all 
of the kinds of wrestling that I've loved from, you know, stuff from Chicago in the 1950s to, you know, tiny uh, dirt uh, floor arenas in Mexico in 2011 to France and to Japan to big the Tokyo Dome to WrestleMania to indie an indie show in Indiana with 30 people in the audience is the great variety of all of it where, you know, that's the really cool thing about professional wrestling is it is all is a thing, but it's also so many different things. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and Japanese wrestling is like that too, right? I mean, you know, this is very, this match is very different than Koji Kanemoto Jushin Liger, which is on the same, it's just the same promotion. This is very different than, uh, than um, a Kenny, Kenny Omega match now, or mm-hmm. a uh, a Noki match in '73, right? It's like it's all one thing, but it's all very different things. Yeah, and when when I first took the deep dive into Puroresu, it was difficult after you've spent weeks and weeks and weeks absorbing all of the New Japan, all of the All Japan, even the FMW and the UWFI, to suddenly go back to what the to what WWE was doing in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, it was it was difficult to take it as seriously as I had been before. Right, and and you know, I I think that part of the part of the, sort of what I was saying is that you appreciate that stuff for it for being what it is, right? You yeah. know, that is that you know that that's not yep. that that's a rough period of just in general that late '90s, early 2000s. WWF was uh, was rough. Yeah, and I not, certainly not known for match quality by any stretch. Yeah, and you know, I think uh, the cool thing about even being, you know, uh, about being a wrestling fan in twenty twenty one. Although I'm not an enormous fan of almost any current wrestling, particularly, is that I can't you do watch it. <laughs> is that you do have the ability to sort of you got this at your fingertips, you know, historical record, which is which is pretty impressive. And there's all still stuff being unearthed every day. And, you know, one of the things we do over at Saguna Kaid every Friday is we review three or so matches that we think haven't really been out there before. And, you know, because it's explosion of the availability of this stuff is you do, you, you get on your, you get your YouTube fingers working and you can find three things that I don't, we don't think anybody's ever really talked about or seen before. And we do it every week and often have way more things that, uh, to do than we have time to to do. I mean, this uh, uh, the last uh, just on Friday, for example, we were talking about just the randomness of this. Last Friday, the the, uh, the things we reviewed were a Leatherface versus Tarzan Goto handheld from '96. Uh, oh, I was going to say, would that have been okay? '96 was that, that would have been FMW and not Wing IWA. That was oh IWA okay. Tarzan Goto Leatherface mm-hmm. reviewed a battle arts handheld from 2000 where uh, Takeshi Ono and Mohamed Yode wrestled Chad Collier and Rastaman and Chad Collier uh, is doing God's work on his YouTube page. He apparently <laughs> recorded all the all the wrestling he's ever done, and every couple weeks puts up like, "Here's a match I had in England and against uh, Doug Williams, and here's a tag I did in England with Brian Danielson, where Brian Danielson worked under a mask and did a bunch of heel stuff in front of like a carnival crowd of little kids, and here's me working a handheld battle arts match in 2000, and then we did a uh, a match from RPW in Georgia." 
where Jimmy Rave, Kyle Matthews, J-Rod, and in between his two stints in the WWE, Brian Danielson had like a 35-minute elimination match. And I don't know if that's ever been on tape before. It showed up on, 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 on YouTube. We got to watch it, write about it. It's just like, that's the cool thing about being a wrestling fan now is I don't love current wrestling, but particularly, although I can always find some things about it I like, but you can always just sort of dig in and say, oh, shit, here's a Brian Danielson 45-minute Brian Danielson match I didn't know existed until 10 minutes ago, and here it is on YouTube, and let me write about it. And here's some things that that says about that period of his career, right? Or here's yeah. just... I'm just going to enjoy watching fucking Leatherface and Tarzan Goto <laughs> beat each other up for 25 minutes. And you can't see a ton because the, the guy who's doing the handheld is doing a really bad job of following the action, but you can see enough to get a gist of what uh, what this looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and just when you think you, I mean, at, at least as far as I'm concerned, because you, you've, you've unearthed and, and viewed way more of the stuff than I have, but just when I think I'm getting a handle on what went on in Japan, I'm as I'm working on Brian Blair's autobiography, he invites me down to Tampa to go to his house and he pulls out boxes and boxes of wrestling magazines. Apparently he's a guy who, if he was in a publication somewhere, he found the publication and he saved it. And he has all of these, he has all of these mags from Japan. And I and I'm asking him, like, you were in Japan? He was like, man, I spent, like, two total years of my life wrestling in Japan. And I said, I have no idea. And he's pulling, and I'm going through these magazines. Apparently, when he was in the in the uh, American UWF, uh, taking his breaks from there, he would head off to, he would head off to Japan and he's tagging with Vader and he's tagging with Scott Norton and he's hanging out with Chris Benoit and he's hanging out with uh, pre-Yokozuna Rodney Anawaii and he's got all of the photos and the Steiners are there in the photos with them at the airport for some reason with him and Rodney and uh, Tony Holm and and all of this stuff is great. And I I had no clue. And then I'm getting on YouTube and I'm finding handheld footage of New Japan events where he's wrestling Jushin Liger. It's like, man, Brian, I had I had no idea you had such a robust career after the W your WWF stint. And also I had no idea you were in Japan so much. So yeah, I'm looking at this cage match. There's some stuff here. Kind of intrigued. Uh it uh uh, Shinya Hashimoto and Izuka against Vader and Killer B. Yeah, or as March '92. Does he have a copy of that? See, he has a copy. Of that. I'm, I'm I'm sure he doesn't. Um, but he, he said he said yeah. When I when I came over as that, they either called me B-san or they called me Hachi, which is Japanese for B. That Chono singles match, that guy's probably pretty good. Yeah, it looks like two pretty long tours, one in 92 and one in 94. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hashi had a Hashimoto singles. I mean, he, that was pretty he good. Had another, and he had another tour there in 2001. So I'm When I'm over at his house, he starts pulling out all of his ring jackets, and in the midst of it, he has the Ricky Choshu retirement tour final power hall yeah. jacket. That's right. I'm looking at the 2001. He had a... Uh, and a, a tag with Dory Funk Jr. against Mudo and Nishimura. Mm-hmm. It's intriguing. <laughs> it is. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, man. Brian Brian got around in the in the '90s and 2000s more than right. most people think. Um, what's your uh, what's your you've you've done you've written uh, four 
autobiography. For, how did you get into that gig? Like, how oh, did Lord. you end up doing the getting into certain sort, sort of? It seems like a odd niche uh, to a, do. It, it's a boring story, um, but so I'll try to liven it up, and I'll I'll tell you what it isn't. I used to be a reporter for NBC News in Flint, Michigan. This has my my foray into into wrestling autobiography co-authoring has absolutely nothing to do with that. I was writing SEO stuff for an organization in Michigan, the West Michigan Sports Commission. Um, we were doing sports related articles. I'd met Kurt Angle from doing fitness equipment stuff. I even got to go over to his house. Um, and hang out there while he was doing leg presses with an injured knee. And, and he was telling me about uh, the, the requirements of the WWE wellness policy. I'm waiting for him to finish up so I can film him uh, using our equipment that I don't really think he used, but he was just being polite. And um, I knew him from that. So when I started working for this group in Michigan, I called him up. I asked him if I could interview him to talk about tips for amateur wrestlers. He said, yes, absolutely. And then once I had that interview, I started using that as leverage to get other people. So I had an interview with Diamond Dallas Page talking about the benefits of yoga. I had an interview with Taz talking about judo. And then I wanted to get do something for combat sports athletes. So I contacted Dan Severin to see if he wanted to do an interview. He agreed. I only needed him for about 15, 20 minutes to get the content I needed. And he went for an hour and a half. Uh, there were just some things that he really wanted to discuss. And he stayed in contact with me uh, because my cousin owned a brewery that was 30 minutes from Coldwater, Michigan. It was called the Dark Horse Brewery. They, had a, uh, they actually had a show on the History Channel for a while called Dark Horse Nation. Um, I think it got canceled after like eight episodes or something like that. But uh, Dan stayed in contact with me because I think he wanted to have them put out like a beast brew root beer or something like that. <laughs> like, Dan, you're too clean cut. Like my uh, my cousin's a hardcore Slayer fan. Like I, I don't think uh, there, there's some incongruity uh, stylistically, but um, Dan mentioned during one of the conversations that he was interested in putting an autobiography out. And I said, Hey, if you can give me an hour to an hour and a half of your time for the next 14 days, we'll get, we'll get a book written for you. And that's what we did. Uh, the day I, and, and it just so happens the day or the day after I wrapped on interviewing him, I went to work out for the first time in, in two weeks because I'd been slaving over this thing, transcribing and trying to fit everything in. And I listened to Steve Austin's podcast. Hornswoggle had just been released from his contract. And I was listening to um, his podcast interview with Austin and everything he said was cracking me up. And I said, man, I, I really want to hear more. This is entertaining stuff that, you know what? I, I think I might be able to help extract more from him if he'd be willing to do a book. So I left the gym. I wrote him an email. I took a shower. I got out, checked my email. He'd already replied. It said he'd be interested in doing a book. And, and that's how we started working on book number two. So that's really how the whole thing, that's really how the whole thing got rolling. Okay. So you've got the Brian Blair one out coming out 
is basically what this is recorded. People should be able to purchase it. At least um, uh, on Kickstarter. And, at least on and Kickstarter. It, and at some point in October, no matter what. Okay. And are you working on anything right now? Do you have anything lined up for both? This, this one you've done is book four, is Brian Blair? That'll be book four. Um, I have been working on book five since 2018, and that would be a history of professional wrestling in the Bahamas. Um, I haven't decided on a title yet. I'm thinking Bahamian Rhapsody, the, title. the, the unofficial history of pro wrestling's unofficial territory. That's, that's the working title, but, um, I'm, I'm half Bahamian. My mom's from the Bahamas. My wife is from the Bahamas. The first wrestling show I ever saw live was a pro wrestling from Florida event also known as the Professional Wrestling Federation. This is right before um, Dusty Rhodes bolted to go to the WWF to wear polka dots. And uh, oh, Lex- sure, that there's like a there's like a some footage of that. So there's a really great Dustin Rhodes Terry Funk match from mm-hmm. PWF yeah. uh, around that period. And I think wasn't uh, the big star then, um, uh, Big Steel Man. Who yeah, go on to Fred be Tugboat. Oppen. Fred Oppen. Yeah, sure. I remember the PWF. They they main <laughs> evented. The, 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 so the show I went to was Dusty Rhodes and uh, Fred Ottman, Big Steel Man, in a last man standing match. That's the first event I ever went to. Ooh, how uh, was that? That kind of sounds like it might be good. <laughs> uh, Phil, to be honest with you, um, I was 10. Okay, sure. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Um, I, I, I was 10. I was excited. The crowd was molten for Dusty. I, I recall that, and uh, and Dusty got the victory at the end. Um, then the other match I remember vividly was the Nasty Boys against the Terminator and Johnny Ace. Right, that would have been the uh, Terminator would have been Johnny Ace's brother. Yes, who know the the least successful of those three of brothers. Lord Ice's, yeah, Lord Ice's <laughs> right, the one who kind of never really did much. <laughs> And uh, obviously, your most successful Laurinaitis would be uh, Road Warrior Animal for folks who listen to this and don't know that. I can't imagine you'd be listening to this and don't know that. Why would you be listening to me talk about Fujami if you didn't know that? But yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, I bet that was okay. Oh, oh, it was that match was great. I've been interviewing people for this book for at least three years now. I just interviewed Dory Funk uh, four weeks ago and then got to meet him at the funeral for Brian Blair's son. Um, also got to sit behind Hogan during that. Um, so the, yeah. uh, b- uh, so that show you, the PWA show, was that in the Bahamas? It was in the Bahamas. It was in NASA. So they, so they ran, they were, they were sort of the, they ran the Bahamas in the, in the nineties or late, late eighties. In, in, in the late eighties. Yeah. They, PWF they ran, wasn't around that long, right? It was kind of, no, a, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Um, they ran, um, Starting in, like, they took a long break. After the Bahamas became an independent country, they put all sorts of restrictions on who could work in the Bahamas. And it was part of the Bahamianization policy where all of the best jobs should go to Bahamians if they're capable of doing it. And you have this this belief still that professional wrestling is a legitimate sports enterprise and yet these wrestlers are profiting off of it somehow and so 
the local promoters were under pressure to find Bahamians who could do an all Bahamian pro wrestling show. And um, it, it failed miserably, quite frankly, uh, for all of the reasons you'd think it would be difficult to run a pro wrestling show with inexperienced, underweight guys on an island that's seven by 21 miles. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, I've, I've known this guy all my life. He's from down the street and suddenly he's wearing a mask and he's going to, he's going to beat people up. I'm going to catch him at, I'm going to catch him at the fish fry down the street and, right. and, 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 and see what's what. Um, so yeah, for, for all the reasons you can imagine that didn't work out. Um, and so when things got more relaxed in 1981 and they realized they need more foreign investment and more foreign workers, things were freed up for the, for championship wrestling from Florida to come back. And then you had Sweet Brown Sugar and Butch Reed main eventing again, and Dory Funk was booking. And they ran consistently in the Bahamas from 81 to 87. Championship wrestling from Florida went under. And then um, Steve Kern and Gordon Soley decided to bring pro wrestling from Florida back. And then Dusty Rhodes jumped in shortly thereafter and immediately wanted to make a put after he got fired from WCW. Um, Dusty immediately wanted to make a push to take it national, uh, racked up huge debts for uh, Steve Kern and then bolted for the WWF. And uh, as Steve Kern explained to me, that's why he had to go. Uh, that's why he had to go play Skinner in the uh, in the <laughs> WWF for a couple of years to pay off the debts that Dusty racked up for. Oh wow, that's 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 really. Cool. Is there any like footage of of this stuff from the Bahamas? Are you able to find like people at tapes of this stuff? Or are you doing this all based on sort of uh, like interviews and things like that? I've I've interviewed um, I've interviewed twenty different people. In fact, I'm supposed to interview Jody Simon um, sometime in the next two weeks. Joe Malenko. Uh, his family essentially ran outlaw in Florida in the early eighties and also ran in the Bahamas. So instead of running at Nassau stadium, which wasn't really a stadium, it was the, uh, it was a ring that was back behind a restaurant. Cause the guy who owned that restaurant was the major boxing promoter in Nassau. Um, um, but they ran at the Poinciana Arena, and that's where you get a lot of the matches where you have uh, Tyree Pride, the Haitian sensation, main eventing those shows. Sure. I remember Tyree Pride. That's excellent. <laughs> I mean, the, look, I, I love this kind of thing. Like, I 100% love when people put a ton of work into things that are super obscure like this. And I'm very excited to read all about uh, the Malenko's running outlaw at NASA Bahamas. I'm in. I'm first copy. I'm, I'm buying it and reading it. I can't imagine anything more interesting than the, than, the, uh, than the outlaw versus traditional politics of running a tiny island in the middle of the – I mean, what? What a cool idea. Uh, and I'm very excited to see all the things that you're going to be able to dig up about uh, about that, that uh, the history of that. Because I certainly, you know, like I said, we, we met you. I, you know, I don't, I don't know who's, if anybody in the world's watched much wrestling. I mean, there can't be more than 50 people, but I certainly don't have any information about any knowledge or information about that particular uh, subculture and, and, and things that that's a that's a really cool idea. I'm excited about that. Well, if you can track down the match, the only 
Um, the only, that's one of the other weird things is the Bahamas became this grounds for a bunch of random promotions to start showing up in the early 90s. And you had the Savoldis running a show in Nassau um, in, I think, 91 or 92. Uh, they main evented with Tony Atlas and Tito Santana. Dory Funk was Dory Funk Jr. was there. Taz was on that card, and it's the greatest, most awkward, false establishing shot jump cut you'll ever see in, in a in a, uh, a recording of a wrestling show, where if you pull up the Tito Santana, Tony Atlas match, because that's on YouTube somewhere. And they, they start off the match and you have a, a typical Nassau stadium crowd, which is about 85% black Bahamians. And then they give you this jump, this jump cut, which is obviously to an arena in upstate New York with a, bu- <laughs> with a bunch of white kids wearing starter jackets and sweatshirts, assuming it was the winter time. And then right back to the, and then right back to the ring in the middle of Nassau, where it was probably 85 degrees outside in the, in the late afternoon, early oh, that's evening. Funny. Like, yeah, it's like, this is, this is so glaring. Why did they think it would work? <laughs> or they obviously didn't care. That's hilarious. All right. I'm going to let that. Not that I'm necessarily super excited about seeing an early nineties, Tony Atlas, Tito Santana match, <laughs> but I'm excited about seeing that. That sounds watch, really funny. Watch it, watch it for the jump cut alone. And then you can turn it off. It happens okay. right at the beginning of the match. <laughs> it sounds good. Uh, well, Ian, do you have anything else to, to plug before we, uh, we call it a, a show? No, nothing of consequence, man. I've been reading your stuff for, um, for 20 years ago and it was important to the development of my wrestling fandom. So I appreciate uh, that. You know, it's a lot of times when you do this kind of thing and it's something I've discovered with the release of the book is, you know, you know, you just create these things and you write about these things in your, in your room and you don't, you know, assume that there are people who read them and it means something to them, but you don't necessarily know. And I really appreciate, you know, I've really been, uh, you know, heartened to hear people saying, oh man, I've been reading you for this, or I bought a comp tape from you and whatever this year, or I read Segunda Caida and all these people, I didn't necessarily uh, know you do these things. So it's really, I really appreciated hearing that from everyone. And I really appreciate uh, you coming on and talking uh, Japanese wrestling with me, talking about, uh, you know, Maeda and Fujinami are two guys I have a lot of fondness for. And uh, telling us same. all about the, your projects, you should go to, I guess, Kickstarter, uh and kickstarter to pick up the brian blair book and if you're interested in any of the others you can get them on amazon all right and then be on the lookout for bahamian rhapsody uh or oh, or oh. title to be determined <laughs> uh it's some po- hopefully some point soon i really that really sounds like a labor of love and i'm that, uh, it, it uh, really looking oh, forward to reading hopefully that. sometime in uh 2022 or 23 and and I'll be honest, there are going to be some, there are going to be some, especially championship wrestling from Florida diehard fans who are going to say, why does this exist? This is boring. This rehashes some stuff that we already knew. But this, this was not a book that's really intended for the U.S. market. This is intended for uh, bookshelves or the tiny uh, book retailers of the Bahamas. So if, if you purchase it, just keep that in mind. All right. Wonderful. Great. Thanks a lot, Ian. We'll uh, be back next week.